All right, we continue the history of Abraham, the first patriarch of the Old Testament. And we found as a result of his faith in God, Abram has been blessed and protected by the Lord on his journey from Ur to Haran and finally to Canaan. And even during a momentary lapse when he went down into Egypt, God protected him and brought him back to the place of faith. Abraham has become a wealthy, prominent, influential person in the land, and he's growing in his confidence that God will keep his promises. Most of his days have been inconsequential, going about the routine of his nomadic lifestyle, and we can praise the Lord today that most of our days are like that as well. But one day, the idyllic and peaceful life of Abraham changed. Word came to him that a powerful coalition uh, had come from the east and invaded the Jordan River Valley. They have swooped down upon many cities in the land of the east uh, side of the river. They've gone almost down to the border of Egypt. They're pressing on the southern border of the promised land, and when they return, they come to the cities of the plain where Lot has chosen to live, and they subdue the kings there. They take all of their possessions, all their goods, and Lot and his family with them. So Abram hears about this, and this is a call to arms for him. Out of brotherly love for Lot, he'll do his best to rescue him, even though Lot really got himself in this predicament and really doesn't deserve it. And God gives Abraham the victory, and Lot and the people uh, taken with him are delivered, as well as all the goods that they owned. At the end of this venture, uh, Abraham meets two other kings who come out to receive him, And they are men of totally different character. One is characterized by righteousness and peace. The other by arrogance and greed. One brings a blessing. The other brings a demand. Abraham's response is another act of trust because he receives the blessing of the righteous king and he refuses the offer of the worldly king. We, too, are involved in warfare in our day. It's not the same as Abraham's. It's not uh, physical in nature. But our battles are, are not carnal. They're spiritual. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but of the spirit. We are threatened by the same forces that caused Abraham to go to battle. The marauding armies were empowered by the flesh and the devil and the world. As God gave the victory to Abraham, then... He gives the victory to those who are faithful to him today. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for these uh, great stories of the Old Testament, uh, which are our pictures and metaphors often for the life of the believer. And Lord, as Abraham was called to uh, have to go out and fight for his... Uh, nephew Lot, and recapture stolen goods and stolen people. Help us, Lord, realize today that we have our battles as well. They may not be of a physical nature. Sometimes they are. 
There are very little times that we have to go out and actually fight a war. But Lord, we we have wars within the soul. We have wars within the nation. And we need to be on the right side. And we pray, Lord, you help us to be like Abraham, who proved himself faithful to you, and you gave him the victory. We pray you'd give us the victory as well. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to show you in this passage this morning is the threat of captivity and defeat posed by these armies that come down from the east. When God promised the land to Abraham, his intention was for him to live there in the blessing of peace and productivity and security. The coalition of these eastern kings posed a threat to God's promise. Abraham uh, is victor over the threat. However, Lot falls captive to it. And really, there's a spiritual background uh, that puts them in each, each one of these situations. So let's look here briefly at the coalition of these warring kings in verses 1 through 4. These eastern kings are associated with Babylon and the Euphrates River Valley. And so we're going back to a previous rebellion against God uh, that really is kind of continuing in that particular area of the world. Now, Amraphel is the first king mentioned, and he's king of Shinar. Uh, Shinar is the same plain of Shinar where the uh, rebellious uh, tower of Babel was built Nimrod was king, and he kind of began the city building in that area. So we're immediately put in contact with enemies of God as well as enemies of man. Then we have Arioch of Elisar. Uh, this was a leading tribe in the southern region of Babylon, so in the same general area. Keterleomer later on is identified as a leading king, the one who's put this coalition together. Uh, from Elam, which we believe is the ancient region of Persia, modern-day Iran. Battle's still going on in these areas today. And he actually heads up the federation. Tidal is a leader of a band of tribes located in northeast Babylon, uh, not actually uh, unified as a nation. The term nations here is goyim, which can be translated Gentiles. So this is a group of people uh, uh, that are brought together under this one man. And these are all city-states of the time that uh, represent the humanistic endeavors of mankind. So they come together to protect their mutual interests in Canaan and the surrounding region. And apparently, uh, this part of uh, Canaan and then uh areas east of the Jordan River, were under the the power of these Babylonian kings because they were receiving tribute from them, as verse 4 indicates. Twelve years, they, meaning the the five kings of the plains, uh, served Keterleomer, so that means they sent tribute, they sent tax money, and in the 13th year, they decided they had enough and they were going to rebel. So they don't send their tribute in the 13th year. 
Again, the five kings are mentioned, each leaders of a city on the southern end of the Dead Sea. We believe that some of that region is actually now covered by the lower part of the Dead Sea. Uh, but they're not going to pay taxes anymore. And all these city-states, their rulers, their representative, again, of, of civilization without God in rebellion to God, making their own gods to worship, and they build their own little domains. They create their little treaties to protect themselves when they're attacked or when they want to go on the attack. And they, they have no qualms about uh, destroying or controlling other people, taking their lands and gaining their resources. This is the whole uh, idea. Uh, and it's been true of humankind uh, up until the present day. So the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world are always in conflict with each other. And we need to make decisions on which side we stand. Now, in verses 5 through 12, we have the campaign of the ruling kings. What they do as they proceed to this area and bring it back under their control. So in verse 5, we're told the following year, the 14th year, Caterlionomer says, well, I've had enough. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to teach these kings a lesson. So uh, we have a list of the cities that they pillage, that they rampage on their way uh, to uh, teach a lesson to these five kings. So he comes down in that area. He attacks the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. Of course, none of these people are around anymore. But back in those days, these uh, people just across the River Jordan from Israel, uh, these people, the Rephaim and the others, they were a people of large stature. You'll remember in the story when... Um, Joshua begins to go into the land. They start conquering on the other side of Jordan, the, the eastern side. They come up to this king named Og of Bashan. This would have been the same region. Uh, his bed measured 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. So that gives you an indication how big this fellow was. They were uh, what we would call giants today, but they, they, they were no match for this coalition that was coming from the east. And we're told here that they go all the way to the south uh, to the Gulf of Aqaba, almost to that point, which is on the Red Sea. They turn back to the north. They come up to Kadesh, and they defeat the Amalekites. Now, those, that Kadesh was in the land of promise, but far to the south of it. It didn't yet affect Abraham at all. And then they go back over to the plains where these five kings were. And these five kings come out uh, to fight in a battle against uh, Keterleomer and uh, his army. So verse 8 explains to us the battle, the final battle, the most important one, uh, to Abraham. So these kings then are routed, if you look at verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim, which was uh, uh, at the southern end of the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea as it's called here, was full of asphalt pits or tar pits. Now remember, back when the uh, Tower of Babel was being built, they had the brick and they had the tar, the asphalt. So maybe this was one of the resources that they wanted and that they were maybe trading for. And so they're going to control this, but it's going to work against the kings 
uh, of the uh, plain here because the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of them um, uh, fell into these asphalt pits and the remainder of them fled to the mountains in, in the nearby region. So they're totally wiped out. They're totally defeated. The armies of Kenileomer uh, take all the provisions and they go their way. And the key thing is they take Lot and his family and his goods and off they go back to the region of Babylon. And who knows what would have happened to them there. If Lot had been left alone, Abraham may not have even become involved in this story. Uh, this is a war of the world, just a political problem of the world. He didn't really have to worry about it. He may not even have heard about it for days after it happened. Living in faith under God's blessing in the land of promise, he didn't have to be a whole lot concerned about what the rest of the world was doing. However, Lot's story is a little bit different than that because his poor choice led him to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Had he chosen by faith to remain with Abraham and stayed in the promised land and not chosen by sight, he wouldn't have been there in the first place. He wouldn't have been in trouble. So his being taken captive by Keterleomer is due to his captivity to his own selfish nature and desires, his hankering for what the world could offer, what he thought it could offer. And for a while that appeared to work out, but he doesn't have victory over this threat that comes. As a matter of fact, he is uh, subdued, he's captivated. He's not living for the Lord, and this is the result. So it's only because of faithful Abraham that he is going to be delivered from what may have been, could have been a horrible fate under the hands of these uh, foreign kings. And we, too, live under the threat of captivity and defeat, maybe not so much physically as spiritually. Now, let's think of this in terms of of nationally and personally. Nationally speaking, the Lord says, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah. We often hear our leaders say, God bless America. I think it's just a phrase that they want to say because, um, you know, many of the people in America still believe in God. But when a nation turns its back on God, how can he bless it? And we're at that point in our nation. And we as Christians can stand up for what is true and what is right, but we have to realize our major concern is not for a worldly kingdom, it is for the kingdom of God. That's primary. And only through the true church is the preaching of the gospel uh, can a nation be saved or delivered from the decisions it makes to go away from God. And I think that we're much more caught up in the politics of the world than the business of the church. And just think about the topic of our Sunday lunch conversations points that out. Now, let's go to the personal thing here. Our warfare is not necessarily physical in nature. Maybe someday it would get to that point. I don't know. But our warfare is against the desires of the flesh, 
which James and Peter say war against the soul. A lot chose the cities of the plain through selfish desire, what he thought would be the good life, and as a result, he became captive to the world that he chose, and he shared in its defeat. His material misfortune was actually the result of a spiritual compromise. And the same can happen to us if we're not careful. We don't keep our priorities straight. Our warfare is against the devil and the world, which the devil currently controls. And Paul reminds us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, like Abraham did with uh, his, his warring kings, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And yes, we can see that operating in the material world in nations like our own. And for these reasons, we need to put on the whole armor of God, Paul tells us, trust in the power of his might, not human might. <clears throat> these enemies attempt to invade our soul, to captivate and subdue us so that we are defeated Christians. And only the Lord can give us the blessing of victory that assures our peace and our security in a world that's gone crazy. And we need to remember that. That's the priority. Now, let's look at the victory of the faithful over the worldly threats and what Abraham is able to accomplish in the next few verses. First of all, Abraham defeats this worldly coalition that's come down and defeated every uh, city-state, every area that uh, they came to, and they're now on their way back home. And we see here that Abram, in verse 13, hears about this tragedy. Someone escapes this whole uh, mess from the cities of the plain, and they go and they tell Abram the Hebrew. And this is the first uh, reference uh, to a person being a Hebrew in the Bible, and it likely connects Abram to Eber, you remember that it's through him that the promise of the seed uh, is traced. And it's interesting that of all the people in that area that this person could run to, it was Abraham. And Abraham didn't really live all that close to this particular area. But he chooses to go to Abraham, who by this time must be well known and respected in that region. Now, Abraham's center of operation is still at the Oaks of Mamre near Hebron, which is an elevated place, kind of in the middle of uh, that region of the Promised Land. We find here that Mamre is an Amorite. So he's a native of the land. He has two brothers, Eshcol and Aner, and they are like uh, likely a large family that are living in that same territory. Maybe they're of the same profession. And since Keterleomer attacked Amorites, it says back up in the previous chapter or, or um, paragraph, they would have good reason to want to go on the attack against Keterleomer. And we also find here in verse 13 that these men were allies with Abram. 
that may indicate they had some kind of a loose agreement between them. If uh, harm was coming to one of them, then the others would help them out, or vice versa. (coughs) So they're uh, ready now to uh, help each other in this situation. And when Abram hears that Lot has been captured, he pulls his resources and he hunts down the foreign invader. And we're told that Eshkol and Enner, along with Abraham and his 318 men, we'd have to assume that they would have nearly the same number, uh, they're heading north towards Dan, which is still in the territory of the Promised Land, the farthest extremity north. And they're, they're chasing after Keterleomer. They catch up to him. And this indicates to us something else here, that Keterleomer has now decided to take a route different from the way he came down. He's returning through the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he's uh, gone past where Abraham was. He's heading toward the north, uh, towards Dan, and later on Damascus as they cross back over, heading uh, to their homeland. And Abraham's troops catch up with him. And he wisely divides his forces into... uh, uh, different uh, uh, companies, I guess we could say, and they, they, they launch a surprise attack and they rout the enemy and they chase them another 50 miles toward Damascus. They recover all the goods, they recover the people, and most importantly, Lot, even though Lot got himself into this predicament. So he is successful in... Uh, defeating an army we would have to assume was much larger than his own, maybe five or ten times to one. We don't know for sure. But the Lord gave him the victory because he went to the war for a just cause. And we find that faithful believers also use God's resources to defeat worldly threats. So let's think about that for a couple of minutes. First of all, besides trusting the Lord, which we know Abraham was doing at this point in time, Abraham relied on his friends. Now, we don't know a lot about these men. We're not absolutely sure if they were even worshipers of Jehovah, but they were friendly to Abraham. He was friendly to them, and because of that friendship, God could bless these men. Remember, God promised those who bless Abraham, he will bless. So this friendly relationship enables them all to uh, help defeat the enemy and be blessed by getting the spoils, and eventually that's what these men get. But today, faithful believers can rely on other believers during the struggles and the temptations of life. We can share our fears and our foibles and seek the aid of fellow Christians to pray for us and encourage us in God's word. We can do the same for them. And really, this is one of the purposes of the church and why we should belong to it. And unfortunately today, we we have many people professing the Lord Jesus Christ that are just mavericks running all over the place. They don't go to church anywhere. They're not involved. And uh, we think that this is pleasing God somehow when certainly it's not. It's not really being helpful to his body, the church. Now, on the national scale, the true church, the believing church, stands for truth and righteousness 
uh, that can turn away God's wrath. And it's becoming a smaller and smaller and smaller force in the United States. And spreading the gospel really is the best thing we can do for America or any country. And again, we have to concentrate on what we can do to change the tide. And that's pretty much trying to get people saved. Abraham also showed courage instead of fear. God gave him that courage. He's willing to put his life on the line for another believer who was in need. He's showing love toward Lot. And Lot's poor decisions got him into this predicament. But Abraham did not let him go, didn't ignore him, didn't say, oh, he's getting what he deserved. He put on his armor and he chased down the foe. And standing up for the Lord today can be frightening. You're outnumbered by thousands to one today. And there are far more open fools of the gospel and a righteous way of living than there was even a decade ago. So how many times has the Lord encouraged us then in the Bible, fear not, he's with us. So the victory is ours. We also need to try our best not to give up on people who profess to be saved, but they don't always act like it. We need to pray for them, and we need to prod them to get to where they need to be or back to where they need to be. That's what Abraham probably had in the back of his mind. Maybe Lot will change his mind and and come back over and, and choose a portion in the promised land. And Abraham also was wise in how he approached the battle. God gives his people wisdom as they face the battles of life, and he helps those who are doing the same. And if we find that we lack wisdom, James says, well, you need to pray for it. Whatever situation is, you you feel that you lack it. Abraham displayed a lot of qualities that were Christ-like in his actions that we also are able to display today. Brotherly love, boldness, and courage, wisdom, and sacrifice, and these are what give believers victory over the world. Now, let's see how this all turns out. The faithful are blessed as they give God credit for victory. This is what we see happen in the life of Abraham. Now, in verse 17... We see that Abraham receives the blessing of a person called Melchizedek, king of Salem. And verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. All right, so this occurs in the valley of of, uh, Shava, uh, verse 17. King of Sodom comes out meets him at the valley of Shava, that's the king's valley, after his return from the deed of Ket- uh, defeat of Caterleomer and the kings who were with him. So apparently, uh, this king hears about the success of Abraham, and he goes north to greet him, and it appears that he and the king of Salem are pretty much in the same locality. And uh, these two kings come out to meet Abraham, in the Valley of Shava, the King's Valley, which we believe is the Kidron Valley that is very near Jerusalem. Bera, the king of Sodom, comes out to meet Abraham. Uh, the mention here of 
after his defeat of Kedarlaomer, uh, kind of puts Abraham in the best light. The defeated king meets the conquering hero. So that brings out the difference between the two men. And at this point, Bera says nothing. He brings nothing upon Abraham's return. We just know he went out to meet him. Now, in stark contrast, this other king comes out, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Melchizedek, that term, may have been a title or name, means king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem. Salem means peace. So here we have king of righteousness, king of peace, coming out to meet Abraham. And we don't know a lot about this man either. Matter of fact, this is the only thing we have in the Old Testament other than uh, one of the Psalms saying that the Messiah will be of the order of Melchizedek, as far as the priesthood. And then that's explained to us a little more in the book of Hebrews. Now, we're not going to go there. But this mysterious person uh, whose name and position bring together characteristics of righteousness and peace, just the opposite of the king of Sodom, who had gone to war and lost, and the rules of people who are exceedingly wicked before the Lord. And Melchizedek is also called here priest of God Most High, or El Elyon. And this indicates that he was a worshiper of Abraham's God, even though he was a Canaanite. So there were still little pockets of people that were perhaps a remnant uh, from, uh, you know, Babylon as people spread out in their different language groups that believed in Jehovah. But we don't know how, we don't know why, but here is an ally, a Canaanite who believes in the same God as Abraham, and he's even a priest. And we don't exactly know how that all works out either. But it's an important reminder that blessing is from God. And he comes out to greet and honor Abraham for his victory. He spreads out a banquet before him. It says when he comes out, uh, he brought bread and wine. And so he spreads a banquet out for all the, the army that defeated this Keterleomer and his army. So uh, he blesses him in the name of God Most High, who is the creator or possessor of all things in heaven and earth. He also blesses God, Al Elyon, for it is God who has granted Abraham the victory. And it's an important reminder again that All of our blessings flow from God. He's the one who gives the victory over his enemies and ours. And to bless him is to praise and thank him for what he has done. Now we know that Abraham probably was thinking this and maybe even praising God his way back home. But now we have a a solid reminder from an ally that God is the one who provides the blessing. Now, Abraham is superior to the Sodomite king because he is the victor. But he recognizes that Melchizedek is superior to him because he is priest of the Most High 
And then it says in verse 20, and he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. So of all the goods that he brought back, he gives now, through this priest, to the Lord, a tithe, a portion. And what that's saying is that he agrees with what Melchizedek has said, that God is deserving of praise and glory because he gives the victory. Now, Abraham, in turn, rejects the demand of Bera in 21 to 24. Now, let's note if we can detect something about this person's attitude. This king comes out uh, with an arrogant attitude of expectation. We've already noted that when he came out, he doesn't give anything to, to Abraham. Maybe he doesn't have anything left to give. We don't know. But you would at least say, uh, thanks, Abraham, for recovering all the stuff we lost. But there's nothing there. What are the first words he says? He says, give me. What right does he say have to say, give me, when he lost the war? He lost the battle. Rightfully, everything that was taken from him uh, now belonged to somebody else because they won the battle. They won the war. But when he comes back, he says, give me the persons, and you can go ahead and take the goods for yourself. He's kind of making a bargain here. But he has no right to tell Abraham to give him anything because Abraham's the one who recovered all the people. Now, Bira probably thinks he's gracious and magnanimous in his offer to give all the spoil and return for the people. But then what would happen? He could say that he made Abram rich in this encounter. He might even say, well, I paid Abraham to go recover everything. And Abraham does not want anyone to think that he is indebted to anybody but God, especially an ungrateful, wicked, and worldly king like the Sodomite king. Abraham's not going to be beholden to anyone but the Lord, the God Most High. And that's what he says in verse 22. He says to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. And what that meant was, is he raised his hand up and he said these words. He's making an oath to God, he's making a promise to God, a commitment to the Lord, that he's not going to take anything from anyone and, and give them any sense of victory. It's all God. He's not going to take the least bit of anything. Look at what he says here. Um, I'm not even going to take a sandal strap, not a thread of anything that belongs to you to show that I believe God is the one who enriches me, God's the one who gives me the victory, it doesn't have anything to do with you, who uh, is a a wicked uh, person and uh, controlling a wicked city-state. So the only thing he requires is the food the army has already taken, what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with him, which would be Mamre and Anal, or his uh, brother Aner and Ashko. That would be their just dessert for what they have done in helping him out in this situation. So again, Abraham, as we see here, has come a long way in faith, hasn't he? If you compare this chapter with chapter 12, when he went down into Egypt, 
uh, he wasn't trusting the Lord at all. He got himself into a jam down there that God had to get him out of. But now he's waiting upon the Lord for the blessing of victory. He doesn't need the goods that were delivered there. And he gives some of those to the Lord. And he's not going to take any credit and take any from the wicked king. He's going to give credit to God because that is to whom it is due. And as we close today, we are reminded that we live in a land of great wealth and opportunity. If we work hard and take advantage of those opportunities, we can make a good living. We can have a good life like Lot did. But we have to remember that should not be the focus and the goal of our life as it was Lot's. Our purpose is to walk with God in faith, trust his promises, and serve him with our gifts and goods. And when we do that, God can bless us. And we need to think about what true blessing is. Is true blessing just the good life, just the material stuff? Or is it being able to live in a tumultuous world uh, in peace and safety and security that no matter what happens to me, if all my goods get taken away, I still have right relationship with God. Even if my life is taken, I'll be in a better place. That's the way Abraham was thinking, not the way Lot was thinking, and that's the way we need to think today. Neither should we take credit for any victories in our life against that which threatens the soul. When we overcome temptation, maintain proper separation from the world, take our stand against the flesh, the devil, and the world, and refuse to let anyone take credit for what God alone has done, we're living the life of faith like Abraham did, which only God can bless. So let's be sure that as we war against the modern-day foes, we're on the side of Abraham, and we give uh, glory to God for the victories and blessings he brings our way. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for your goodness, your grace, your power that enables us to live a victorious life. Lord, we pray you'd forgive us when we fail, because we all do. But Lord, help us to get up and uh, to get back where we should be and to serve you as we should. We're thankful, Lord, for the example of Abraham, that when a brother was in trouble, when the world uh, invaded uh, that person's life, he was there to help out. And Lord, help us to have the same attitude towards our brothers and sisters today. Help us, Lord, to be courageous. Help us, Lord, to uh, be a friend. And Lord, help us to uh, help others to have victory in their personal lives as well. And Lord, we know that when we do this, then the blessings will come from you. Not necessarily materially, Lord, but spiritually. So encourage us with these words today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.